This is The Shift Podcast. Hey, thanks for checking out The Shift Daily Podcast with John Jang. The storms in BC have caused catastrophic landslides across the province. Natural disaster expert John Clegg explains why these disasters happen so fast, why we need to be proactive in preparing for these events, and more. Are you or someone you know picky eaters? It might be time to finally try the samosas or sushi. Author and Global News Communications Director Rishma Govani explores how food can help our world expand with every bite. And what's the best way to protect your home from flooding in an emergency? Andy Barrar is back with tips on how to direct water away from your homes and how he dealt with flooding in BC. This is the Shift Podcast. John Jang here filling in for Shane. This next conversation was recorded earlier in the day. And in this chat, they discussed trains that were getting through to the area, which was true when the conversation originally took place. But in the hour since that has changed, we now know that train service has halted. But with that said, here is Shane Hewitt in conversation with uh, Professor John Clegg, a professor of earth sciences at Simon Fraser University regarding the volatile nature of landslides. We chatted about last night in the shift tonight, too. Uh, BC is getting soaked. It's been getting soaked actually for a little bit now, and we wanted to find out what's going on. As I remember back to 2013, when my city in Calgary got flooded, it sort of felt like it came out of nowhere, and it was just a staggering amount of water that came down those rivers into the city and how quickly it changed. It seems uh, eerily familiar with what's going on, and to help us understand this is John Clegg. Uh, He is with the Department of Earth Sciences, Simon Fraser University, John, the kind of day uh, today, well, yesterday, and uh, the next couple of days, I'm sure, where you're face down in data for a little bit. Yeah, um, I, I really, uh, Shane, I appreciate your comment about it coming out of nowhere. I mean, this is uh, a little different from the situation you faced um, in southwestern Alberta. Uh, this system came in off the Pacific. Um, we get these systems that transport a lot of moisture onto the coast. Um, Typically, it's a name that's becoming quite embedded in the in public attention as an atmospheric river or weather bomb, something like that. Um, just it is a, a band of uh, moisture laden air that uh, tracks across the coast. And you can get these things anywhere from uh, Alaska down to California. We just caught one. We really got hit by one broadside over the past two days. Um, but it is similar to the situation that you faced in southwestern Alberta and that the, the amounts of rainfall are similar. Um, hope, which is uh, uh, interesting, we're hoping for hope right now because it received about 10 inches of rain in two days. And you can imagine if you drop that much rain on a land surface, your rivers, your streams are not going to be able to handle it. So you get, you get uh, overland flooding, you get a lot of secondary effects from that, that uh, over a very large area. So, you know, it's difficult to cope. Well, there's so much to talk about. I mean, again, you're dealing with mountains. So, of course, you've got collection basins and all those things where all gravity is not really the best friend, is it, in this case? And, and, and we started to see the washouts and the mudslides. So maybe we should just sort of look at a bit of a recap of what's going on because – I find, John, and you can correct me as always, uh, I find that we're starting to become so dramatic in our language around weather that we're making it be dramatic. And, but I, and I think that that does a disservice, and here's why. 
in events like this, when you talk about being a being a weather bomb or whatever, that kind of makes sense to me. Like this is this is a big deal, right? But we toss about these words, these dramatic words, so often that it's you know then it's kind of a bit of a fizzle. It's a bit of a fizzle, right? And and it almost diminishes the power of Mother Nature with everything that goes on in an event like this. So I'm always cautious. So how do we break this down and look at this as a weather event and be able to look at it and say, holy cow, this is staggering and understand what's happening? Yeah, well, true. I mean, uh, weather disasters are actually quite common. And if we look at uh, uh, kind of the impacts of natural disasters in Canada, I think the big one would be weather related, whether it be hailstorms or floods. I think back to the uh, floods on the Red River in, in Manitoba. Yeah, um, water everywhere. Um, because they do uh, impact a lot of people. And that's one thing that you have to consider is that the, uh, the size of the area that's impacted by an event, whether it be the 2013 southwestern Alberta floods, you know, High River and Calgary slammed or this which uh has impacted several communities actually vancouver escaped the worst of it we didn't get as heavy rainfall as a place like princeton or merritt so your listeners who've been to those towns um would appreciate that you know they sit they sit on rivers and uh, those rivers are large enough that when they escape their banks they basically flood a good part of those communities um so this is a a fall weather system, we do get them. It's by no means the first of these uh, kind of so-called atmospheric rivers. Um, this one, I think, is probably a record setter in terms of uh, the historic record, um, just due to the amount of uh, rain that fell over a large area. And, you know, it, it's, I call these kind of cascading events because it's not just the rain. The rain triggers landslides. Landslides block roads, you get washouts along highways, um, you know, you get these secondary effects that isolate people. And right now, um, I, it's going to change rapidly, but virtually Vancouver is isolated by ground, at least not by rail. The rail lines are intact, but all the highways pretty well are blocked. And that's a pretty big deal. You know, I, we will get things back to some sense of normality probably in a couple of days. Um, so it's it's not terminal by any means, but it it's having a huge economic impact. This, this storm. Well, it's so many people stuck, right? <laughs> trying to travel, trying to beat the storm, trying to get where they needed to go, and all that stuff. And we had stories of friends of the shift who were spending last night in the Hope Hospital parking lot in their car, right? Because there was no power in Hope, and you know these are the impacts. The hotels and motels couldn't really help out because in today's electronic world, if you can't process payments and all those things, what do you do? Uh, that's not easy. So it does become incredibly complicated. Now, the amount of landslides we've been seeing, I I always think back to when I lived on Vancouver Island, and it was probably 1983 or 1980, uh, yeah, probably 1982 or 83. We were driving through from Port Alberni to Nanaimo for Christmas dinner. It was Christmas Day, and it was raining like crazy. Cathedral Grove, there's a river that runs right through that on the west end of it. And it was overflowing to the road. And we managed to make it, uh, sort of drove through the water on the road before they shut it all down. To us, that was just, you know, well, river's flooding. It's wintertime in BC. And here we have, um, here we have all this stuff going on. And we've got mudslides and, and the impact of all of that. So it's got to be, 
it's a bit of a crossroads, isn't it, John? Because it happens, and it happens quite often. But now we're so aware of all the climate things, and then add on to this all the mudslides. Is that is that really the the danger? Is the is the Earth just slip sliding away? Well, you know, I, we have had these events in the past. As I say, I think this one is kind of close to being unprecedented for the South Coast, um, and there is a likely um, kind of amping of this event by, by a warmer climate. If you think about it, you know, we've got a warmer atmosphere. Warmer atmosphere can kind of store more water. You get a storm like this, it's channeled onto the coast and you get that extra amount of water that ends up on the land and you, you create a bigger problem than you would otherwise. And I know I've talked to a bunch of my colleagues in Atmospheric Environment Service, and they're doing their fancy modeling with computers and all that. But they're, they're looking also at the record of these events historically, and they're finding that they are increasing in number, maybe not in severity, although this one will certainly ramp up that severity index. And I think people might be concerned we don't know for sure, but they might be concerned that these could be more frequent in the future. It's not like we're going to have them every year, but uh, they could be a problem. And maybe we ought to be a little more proactive in planning. I'm not criticizing the government. They're doing a good job in supporting people who are isolated. And I think they've evacuated pretty much all of merit. Now. You know, they've taken people out of their homes and put them in emergency shelters. Um, that's a big deal. Mm -hmm. Princeton's flooded, parts of Abbotsford are flooded. And, you know, the response, the reactive response is quite good. But, you know, you got to kind of begin to look at this a little more proactively. What can you do to uh, minimize the impact of these events in the future? You got to look at your road system, I think, and ask how you can keep that intact, uh, which is not the case now. You know, all the highways are out, at mm -hmm. least temporarily. So that's not really a very good record, I think, of being proactive in terms of dealing with this problem. Well, and how difficult must that be? I mean, if we look back at 2013, eight years ago, they're still doing work on the river in and around Calgary, right? And that was basically the river. And when, you know, that's a long time, it's eight years. When you look at BC, not only are you dealing with the river, but the landslides, the amount of weight and power behind a landslide, how do you protect from that? And then you're dealing with mountains and gravity. So, I mean, I would say it, the difficulty grows exponentially when you're dealing with with what happens you'd be seeing this. Yeah, absolutely. You're you're right about that. Um, you know, it's a almost a miracle that they can maintain a road, Highway One, through the Fraser Canyon. When you drive that highway, you realize how vulnerable it is to rock slides or you know other types of landslides. They do a pretty good job. You know, they they deal with the problem sections on the highway, but you can't totally eliminate that. You know, I just think we have to keep at it. Um, you know, washouts, you know, of the highway should be avoided. That's an engineering uh, thing that you can deal with. Uh, big rock slides, they can be a bit unpredictable. You don't know for sure when and where they're going to occur. And, you know, you can't totally eliminate the problem. Mm -hmm. Uh, but I think you can keep working at it and being a little more proactive. It is very expensive, you know, to deal with a problem that uh, occurs along hundreds and hundreds of kilometers of uh, roads. 
Um, you can look at, I think, some of these vulnerable communities and say, hey, that river just flooded 100 homes. We shouldn't let that happen again. We need to deal with that because it could happen again. Right. And, you know, the cost and the stress to people, uh, you know, dealing with those problems is huge. And, you know, what? Mother Nature is... <laughs> He's got the upper hand in a lot of cases. Well, yeah. You can never eliminate these problems. Well, what about the future, John? We've got, uh, when there's an avalanche, often, you know, not all of the avalanche falls, right? Like a large chunk of it falls and it takes away stuff below it. If it's around cities or around activities, they got to go up there, they got to blast and do that. We see that on the Coquihalla all the time where they uh, preemptively, you know, blast so things don't slide, controlled slides and all these things. But... With the dirt, with the mudslides, landslides that are happening here, is there a risk of that? Does it change the risk level now for the rest of the winter? Or because I just, I don't know how to describe it. I imagine like part of it slides away and then there's a very fractured, um, you know, uh, you know, at risk, vulnerable area that could, you know, I imagine it like in the movies, right? You get at the very end of the movie, you get the one crow lands on the right tree and the wind blows the right way. And then the whole thing slides, but, but as me being dramatic, but you know what I mean? Like it could create more vulnerability that we just can't see yet. And that could last for a while. Am I wrong? Oh no, you're absolutely right. Um, the ground is saturated now. Um, you know, we've had all this rain falling on um, burn terrain with crazy amount of wildfire uh, burned land and uh, rain falling on these uh, burned soils tends to run off more easily. You tend to get uh, enhanced flooding, uh, exacerbated flooding, but also you can develop what are called debris flows, which are these turbulent flows of water and uh, muddy debris. And to be perfectly honest, I was very surprised we didn't have that happen along, uh, along Highway 1. Uh, Highway 7, which is the northern route across the Fraser Valley, uh, was blocked by landslides. A lot of people were trapped. But there's a stretch along the Trans-Canada near Chilliwack uh, passes uh, Bridalvale Falls in there. It's notorious for being blocked by debris flows. And yet, for whatever reason, this crazy rainstorm didn't didn't trigger debris flow in that area at least not yet not yet yeah um, but we're we're not done with it um we're going to get a break tomorrow uh it's going to be fairly dry tomorrow give people a chance to dry out and hopefully reestablish some some of the, the damaged infrastructure but uh looking farther down the road we've got days and days of rain coming so that um could very well trigger types of things you're talking about where you have a slope that's kind of at the edge of going it didn't actually fail but a little more rain might do that and yeah. that that's really hard engineers uh, geologists have a lot of trouble making those sorts of predictions it's really hard to tell you know what future future you know kind of rain might do to that yeah i like the uh the landslide version of the aftershock, you know, like the ones that are just waiting to tip the scale yeah. a little bit. Um, weather-wise, are, are how we? I know that here where I broadcast from in Calgary, we had a beautiful fall. Weather-wise, it was quite remarkable. Are do you guys ever do you get that sort of uh, 
the actual science version of the Farmer's Almanac to be able to look forward to what we're looking at in the next four to six weeks here? Is there any anything in your, your magic yeah, snow globe? Well, they're definitely calling for a fairly wet fall. I mean, um, November's, November precip on the South Coast is at a record. We haven't had that much precip in November um, ever, as far as I know, in Vancouver. And October was very wet, and yet this followed, of course, two months when we had absolutely no rain in the summer here. So it is totally peculiar. But the predictions are for uh, more rain, um, snow at the highest levels. Um, we have to hope that we don't get a, a, you know enough warming that it begins to rain on snow. Mm-hmm. This is another trigger for, for flooding. Um, we've had that happen in the past. Um, so it's, we're in a, I would say, I, I hesitate to use the word precarious, but it is a little precarious. We don't know that we're not going to have future flood events this year. Um, we're certainly going to get a lot more rain and the ground is already saturated. Um, so I could anticipate if I were a betting man, I'd say there's a good chance we're going to get more landslides. Um, I don't know about the flooding that would depend upon, you know, how much rain comes in from the ocean, but. Um, landslides I can see happen. It's a a crazy statement when you think about it. When you talk about Vancouver or, you know, Fraser Valley and all those sort of places when you say this could be quite possibly the most wet November ever, uh, everyone everyone who's ever been there or lived there kind of rolls their eyes and goes, how's that even possible? Because it's been awfully wet in the past, right? Like that's a lot of water. But, you know, it's ironic in a way because uh, the past few falls have been really nice here. I don't know any of your listeners who've been out in Vancouver in the last few years, but uh, we've had good weather stretching through October. Um, Not so, you know, this kind of reminds me of what it was like 20 or 30 years ago. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I remember when I lived there in the early 80s, right? Constantly. And I I was thinking about that. And we have to remember, yes, climate change is a thing, but let's not tangle up weather events and climate change as being all the same, right? Because I was thinking about a a year ago in October, we had snow for most of October in Calgary. And and already by now, we probably had four or five weeks of snow. And I saw my first snowflakes this morning, which turned into rain and, and didn't really turn into much. So, you know, it is funny year over year. And we often get so caught up in our bubbles as thinking that this is reality because we see it in front of us for everybody. But that doesn't diminish the power of this. It's just impressive. No, no, you know, Shane, you're absolutely right. That's a good point to make is, you know, weather is a bit chaotic. And, uh, you know, you can forecast weather over a long period, but you can't really predict it on, you know, an hour to an hour scale very reliably. Um, you know, and, and when you look at the longer trends, that's climate, you know, that's something that kind of spans more than just this chaotic period when, when we're trying to deal with, you know, an individual kind of atmospheric river and trying to wonder, well, what in the heck just caused that, you know, mm-hmm. that kind of, uh, it's very, very chaotic and complicated. Well, it's a good, nice, simple way to describe it. I'm glad you said that because when you look at, because we often get, when we hear the political end of that conversation, John, of course, we hear people that want to prove their point, right? So they're, you know, this is happening, it's climate change and all those things. And that's, I think you just described it in a great way. If we can all just uh, reset with that, that thought, if it's happening right now, it's the weather. <laughs> and if it's been a trend over a period of X time, you know, that starts to become climate. And yeah. 
we start to see that. I think that's a good reminder. Yeah, I mean, I think you can, um, you know, make some forecasts over periods of years and years and years, but, uh, you know, that kind of forecasting what's going to happen an hour from now in a mountainous landscape is, is very problematic. The amount of water, man. Those rivers are so beautiful in the summertime. The colors, the beauty of them, they're worth stopping and taking pictures of until they turn angry. And then we get this. You know, it's kind of, to me, I can appreciate why someone wants to live on a riverbank, you know, right next to a beautiful river and like 9,999 times out of 10,000, that's a great environment. And then you've got this one out of Mm -hmm. 10,000 situation where your water is entering your house and you're wondering why in the heck did I buy that property? Yeah, that's so true. That's a good reminder because I do love rivers. I've always had a dream of living by one. So (laughs) I'll call you before I ever pull the pin on that. John John Clegg is with uh, the Department of Earth Sciences, Simon Fraser University. Thanks for the insight. I don't think we always quite understand the magnitude that goes into this and the magnitude level here is off the charts. Yeah. And we'll get past this. You know, I mean, uh, I I am impressed by the way government's handling the, the emergency that's arisen. Um, so it's, you know, it's not good, but on the other hand, uh, the situation is being dealt with as well as I think it's humanly possible. Yeah. And, uh, so far evacuation stuff has seems to have gone well, yeah. uh, not perfect, Absolutely. but certainly, uh, well, yeah, they've been helicoptering people off highways and, uh, yeah, at Agassiz there had helicopters all over the place there. So, um, John, thanks so much for the time, man. I really appreciate it. Okay. Shane, anytime. This is the Shift Podcast. I will apologize to you now if you are listening to the Shift and you're hungry because this is going to be very difficult to listen to. Let's talk food. We have a colleague here on the network who is um, a big uh, contributor to all the things that you get to hear every day. And whether it's uh, booking people, whether it's putting together content, hearing her voice, or uh, you know just organizing the things that we do, um, Rishma Govani is 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 a person who you actually know, but you don't know you know. And not only has Rishma gone and done all of this work that we get to enjoy, she wrote a book, and it's a book about food. And this is why it's going to drive you crazy because right now I feel very hungry. Sushi and samosas. Picky eaters, adventurous uh, food parents. How do we put all these things together? It sounds like we're going to go on a little tour, Rishma, and uh, and take a little food tour. Where are you taking me? Yeah, it's 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 a mouth watering journey, a delicious journey, and one that I'm so glad that we can be on together um, today. I'll give you a little bit of a background about the book. Um, the book was actually created almost a decade ago, and we can par- maybe park that idea and come back to it about, you know, why it took that long. But really, it follows two very reluctant, um, hesitant eaters. Their names are Rain and Asha, who are the protagonists of the story. And they want to stick to a diet, a very familiar diet of chicken nuggets and fries. Well, why wouldn't you? That's, that's what they're comfortable with. Now, their parents are really adventurous. They're foodies. They like to go to food trucks and restaurants and pick up different cookbooks and travel. 
And so they have a really hard time convincing their kids to try new foods, but they're determined. They're, they're, they're determined to expose their kids uh, to new ideas through food. And each time one of these kids takes a bite of a new type of food, their worlds expand. They start to see things a little bit brighter and their world gets that much bigger just from one bite. And so it's a journey that's quite transformational uh, around the world. So when you say kids who are picky, I feel like I get that. In today's world where, you know, uh, cultures are crossing in relationships and friendships uh, in this beautiful way that we've uh, seen more and more and more of, quite often you're going to get invited over to your buddy's house. There might be food there that you're not quite used to. That I see as my son. My daughter will try anything. So I'm the kind of person. I love sushi. Um, and at the same time, my friend Gagandeep has made chai for me. I will never be able to drink retail chai again. And uh, my buddy Manny has made samosas and I will never eat store-bought samosas again, because once you've had the experience of these foods, you, you really don't go back like legitimate experiences of these foods. So how do you possibly teach that to kids to try something? It does smell different. It looks different. Um, it, it tastes completely different with some spices they've probably never had before. It's pretty natural to go, Ugh, what is that? If you smell a samosa for the first time, right? Like that could be off-putting for some people because they just don't know. Yeah, it's something different. It's something foreign. And you think back historically and even just Canadian culture or major cities across Canada, like Vancouver and Calgary and Toronto, where we were introduced to Chinese food quite early and it kind of became part of the common fabric. And as different cultures started to come to Canada, some of that food became a little bit more uh, available, right? And it wasn't just something that you had to seek out to go to a certain area and be exposed to. And now you're seeing all types of food in common grocery chains, you know, from high end to low end, you see that stuff there. But the samosa point is interesting because I think even within samosas, there is so much diversity. Like you people now experiment with colors too. And there's yeah. like potato ones and Sikh families do it a certain way and yeah. Hindu families do it a different way during a wedding. And there's meat and chicken and vegetable. What's authentic. All of this is bringing me to, this is a conversation starter. Once you're able to talk samosas and say, I've had it from this place or I had it at my buddy Manny's house. Someone might correct you and say, or not correct you or educate you and say, you know what? I'm going to challenge you. I think you need to head to this place and check this out. Mm -hmm. So I think it's just an automatic conversation starter. It's a safe topic. It's a water cooler topic, one that you can easily approach people on if you're on a dog walk or picking up your kids or just making small talk, you know, in a lineup. And I'll give two other examples, one being... Um, you know, if, you know, Vietnamese food being a little bit more popularized nowadays. And I remember me being a little wary too. It's not that I have this open palate and I also have reservations. So I think it's, it's universal. It's not just your son and daughter at a specific age. I think we all need to check in all throughout our ages, you know, to make sure that 
things change with your palate. So maybe something that you didn't like a few years ago, you want to give it another go, or you've just had a different experience. You have a university roommate who has exposed you to something um, that you haven't, you know, had before. But something like what I'm describing as faux is actually mispronounced. So if I said to someone who happens to know Vietnamese food or be of Vietnamese background, they might correct me and say, it's actually pho. Or I'm not even sure if I'm saying that correct, but yep. that's a starter. That's, that's how a I know it. Starting yeah. point. That's an intersection where we can really find common ground and then the conversation can really start and expand from there. Well, one of the foods for me that's uh, changed over time has been green peppers, as simple as that. When I was a kid, like I couldn't do it. Uh, although one of the foods that has never changed is olives, also still to this day. I will say this about samosa, though. When you find the right samosa, you will hear angels sing. <laughs> yes. like, and when you put that thing in your mouth hole, like you will be like, oh, the, there's the angels. They're singing right now. It's so yeah. beautiful. <laughs> it's like that. There And there's quite an array of spiciness too. Like people automatically make a generalization that samosas are spicy or Indian food is spicy. Yes, it tends to be si spicy, but there is a range. And I think that's important to recognize. And again, what a beautiful way to, you know, str string a conversation together with a stranger. Another example being boba. I know some people refer to it, you know, it is, as bubble tea, but in the West Coast, California land, people refer to it as boba. In the East Coast, they refer to it as bubble tea. Again, a common drink that can bring people together. And now it's exploded. Like you find it everywhere in every yeah. uh, plaza and every mall. Plaza. Yeah. Exactly. It's remarkable. I, um, and to your other point, I did want to say in my family, you know, uh, British lineage, Irish lineage Hewitts at Christmas time on Christmas Eve, uh, Chinese food has become the food. So life changes, right? Like this is, this is cool stuff. So tell us specifically here about the book, Sushi and Samosas. Um, and what, you know, why did you do this? I mean, obviously sharing the conversation is one thing, but you're inspired by something here, Rishma, like there's got to be something that really gets it. Yeah, I think the genesis of the book is it's a very interesting story. A couple of decades ago, I was living in Washington, D.C. And at that time, I was introduced to a little family run, small Burmese, which is now Manamar restaurant. And there was a group of us that went there and we were just enamored by the experience. The host was so delightful. We got to find out about their life back home, their immigration story, the way that they cooked. And it was just really intimate and wonderful to learn about someone's culture that way. And so I decided I want to pursue this. I want to get a group of people and I want us to try a different restaurant every month. I moved back to Toronto and I started this club up and it was called TFLC, which stands for the Toronto Food Love Club. It was quite successful it was first just family and friends, and we would an attempt a different restaurant, a different cuisine, a gem of different restaurants that weren't readily available at the time. I remember trying Somalian food and Cuban food, and there was maybe one or two of them that were around. Um, and then the club itself, the dinner club, got a bit of media attention. And that's when the group ex expanded beyond just my direct family and friends. And so we were up to like 250 people. There were so many interesting wow. people all over uh, different walks of life. Now, not all 250 attended, but there was quite a range of people that I was interacting with 
you know, friends uh, with strangers, strangers with friends. And all together, we shared a common understanding. We wanted to try something new. We wanted to explore different cuisine. And so I think that's where the story really starts. And then started a family and things took a turn. And the book was, you know, the book was developed. It was sort of simmering, marinating, baking. Oh, uh, very good. Look at that. Oh, that's a writer, eh? Hey? Um, <laughs> I love it. So it, it, it sat there. I wrote the book and it was inspired by this dinner club, TFLC. And then the club sort of took a hiatus because life took over and it wasn't easy to go out for dinner anymore with young kids. But the concept of trying things was always there and something that my husband and I really stood stood for. And although formally the club stopped, I did write the book. It got shelved for a variety of reasons, uh, one of which being when I shopped it around to all the major publishers, um, I got extremely good feedback, really positive feedback. But here was the common denominator message. They all felt like it wasn't something they were looking for, which is the irony. Because now you have big box bookstore chains with big displays of books dedicated to diversity and social activism. So it, it's quite profound how progress in one area can be really slow. And the message that I was trying to put out maybe a decade ago is still as relevant as ever today in 2021. It's cool. Um, it is sushi and samosas, a trip of tasty transformations. Uh, Rishma Govani. It's uh, light blue. It's gorgeous. Amazon, uh, Amazon.ca. You can see it there as well. And go shopping and maybe uh, just saying a little gift idea, if not for yourself, uh, but for someone else. Uh, Rishma, thanks for everything that you do for us quietly in the background that comes our way through the shift. We do appreciate all of that. You are one of the very loud, silent voices of this program. So thank you. And, um, and thanks for sharing your love for the book. I look forward to it. Thanks for having me. And I just encourage you and all your listeners to try something new and, uh, and just uh, give it a go and uh, share the book with friends and family so that they can try something new as well. This is The Shift Podcast. It's time to bring in Disco Andy. All right. This is great. I, I come here for the music, John. Well, this is why well, this is why I exist. I, I'm so glad, man, because you know, usually when you and I talk and it's for CKW, we don't get to have a, like a disco party while we no, just no. chit chat. You, yeah. You're missing out. You got it at nighttime. That's when, when mm-hmm. I when I change. I put on my my, my disco uh, you know, attire on and, and we get at it. Bruce Wayne turns into Batman and saves Gotham from crime. Andy Barrar turns into Disco Andy and has a lot of fun. So, you know what? I think you're getting the better deal uh, between the two of them. Uh, Andy, uh, obviously, you know, you're also in the Lower Mainland. You're here on the West Coast. Uh, first of all, how is the past, uh, you know, 12, 24 hours like for you? It's been crazy, Jean. Um, you know, I knew that we were going to have a lot of you know, rain coming. So I prepped as best that I could. I cleaned my gutters. I was on my roof. You know, I emptied, I did everything that a homeowner should do. Mm-hmm. And it turned out it just wasn't enough. I had never seen so much rain in such a short period of time. And you know what I did this morning, John? I woke up, I saw all the rain. I usually go running every morning. And this morning I was like, you know, there's nothing wrong with staying inside today. It's crazy outside. But then I had that other side going, no, no excuses. So I put on the Rocky soundtrack 
and I put on my 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 hoodie and I went running this morning. Wow. And I thought that was, you know, the, the great thing I was gonna do today. But then when I came home, I thought it'd be a good idea to check my downspouts to see how the, the gutters were working. And that's when I found out that everything that I did to prep for this big torrential rainstorm just wasn't enough. So my heart goes out to all the other people out there that have suffered because, you know, it seeing Mother Nature, no matter how much technology we have, John, mm-hmm. it is so humbling when Mother Nature just really shows who's the boss in this relationship. And we, we saw that today. Absolutely. In fact, earlier today uh, in the afternoon when uh, I was in the bullpen here at NW, uh, I was just having a conversation with one of our producers and just reminiscing about the fact that Boy, we we are just so insignificant. We have all this marvel of technology and and buildings, colossal things, but it doesn't matter if Mother Nature doesn't want to play ball. And that's kind of what we're seeing here. Um, A a province as large and as beautiful as British Columbia, when it's healthy, when things are working, you know, it's a pleasure to drive through. But in circumstances where weather is working against you, it becomes a nightmare. So to your point, sir, I think I understand what you are saying. Uh, In terms of then how to best drain downspout water and get it away from a house. I mean, are there lessons that you've learned? Are there things that you picked up based on what you experienced today? Well, I've always known that you want to, you know, get the water away from your house as much as possible. So basically, you do not want that water to come back towards your foundation. So typically with your downspout, they they would just typically have the water, say, go onto your lawn. Mm. But what you can do is you can buy these extensions. And the one that I had bought, and if you go, actually, there's a video. I posted a video on the Shift Facebook group. So you can just go to the shiftheads.ca to see this solution. Because typically, Jean, I have a, a rain barrel. I try to collect the rainwater from the gutters mm. to, to use in my garden. But I realized a couple of years ago that that's really not the case for the fall and winter seasons. So I bought this extension, this downspout extension that I connect to my downspout to push the water. And and this thing is like a little accordion. It's plastic. You can expand it or shrink it. And I tried to push the water more towards um, onto my yard away from the house. But what I learned this morning was that having that much rain in such a short period of time the, the the rain, and you got to check the video out on the shiftheads.ca. Mm. It was coming so much out of that downspout. It was almost like a water tap, like a, like a spigot. Wow. Like I could wash my hands. I could brush my teeth. And, I, and the amount, and I was like, it's been like this for 48 hours. So the, the ground was completely saturated. And because of just a slight grade of, of the ground towards my, my foundation, the water went back. And you could actually see in the video – this flooding happening in the corner of my foundation. And it, my heart sank because this is when I realized oh. like there's nothing I can do right now. And I have an Airbnb, a high-tech Airbnb suite right. in my suite that's right on the other side. And I was like, I hope my guest does not message me. And so I went inside. Sure enough, I get a text message from my guest going, I hate to break it to you, but I'm seeing some water come into the kitchen on the floor when I step in this one spot. Oh, no. And so I, I, I gave her towels. I'm like, listen, if it's really bad, I'll, I, you know, I try to respect people's privacy, but I'm like, if it's really bad, I will come in, but here's some towels. And she was going to check out tomorrow. So it turns out that that wasn't too bad, but then the power went out and, oh. and I have, 
John, I have a, a high-tech smart home. Right. You know, and so everything is voice activated. So this poor guest is sitting in there with no electricity now. <laughs> oh, and no. I think she handled about an hour and a half. She's actually a local person who just came for a little getaway, a right, staycation. Right. And so she messaged me and she said, you know what? I'm going home. I can't handle this. No power. And I, I don't blame her. I, I'm probably going to have to reimburse her for a day. But um, it's been quite a day. You know, first the the flooding and then the power outage. But like when I saw the pictures from, from Merritt, my heart just sank mm -hmm. because, you know, it, everything that I was going through just seemed trivial compared to what other people are facing. So I just want to extend my, my, my heart out to everyone else out there that had experienced things from, from this uh, rainfall. Yeah. Well said. I mean, 7,000 evacuated from uh, the, the town of Merritt and we know that's not the only case. There's still thousands of customers of BC Hydro without power right now. Crews are working. You have to imagine it's been a very busy, stressful 24, 36, 48 hours. They're doing the best they can. And I know at some point, just hearing the word stay patient can be so frustrating, but that's really the best we can do. At least in times like this, Andy, we are reminded that there's goodness in humanity and, and we're seeing uh, neighborhoods come together, communities come together, rallying for a good cause and trying to help one another. Uh, those are the stories that I think we need to put a highlight and spotlight on because those are the stories that I think are worth sharing after all of this. But in terms of the extension that you had, sir, for uh, the downspout, uh, how much do those things cost? Because maybe somebody listening right now is thinking, you know, that, that could work out maybe for me because we're not always going to be dealing with atmospheric rivers that'll bring like 200 millimeters of rain every, every weekend. Well, the, the, this is the thing, John, is when we don't have this type of weather, nobody thinks about this kind of stuff. And so this is why I wanted to talk about this because you really need to pay attention about how that water from your gutters is going through the downspout, how it is traveling away from your house. A daylight, and one thing I did, John, is I took my video camera on my smartphone and I went around my entire property where there was flooding because mm. I wanted to, I needed like evidence and reminder to know all the areas that need to be fixed because in springtime when everyone's going to want to go to the beach and, and hang out, I already know that I have a big project and I need to fix either the grading right. or find other solutions by putting, you can dig a trench and, and put some uh, tubing in to, to kind of push the water away. But I just want other homeowners to know that it takes something like this to remind ourselves that, you know, those things that we never think about, nobody thinks about the roof or, or the, you know, the kind of leaks that could happen in your foundation until they actually happen. And right. so this was a very close call for me, even though I did have a little bit of water going in. I know right now that something like this will happen again. I just don't know when. Fair. And so I just hope that I can tell other people as well to check when it rains like that. I know everybody wants to stay inside, but go outside, take your phone and take some evidence of where the water is building up because that is where you're going to have problems Good in the tip. future. Andy, uh, we talked about uh, you know how to dra drain a downspout water uh, away from your house uh, after the experiment that you kind of had and, and a little failed, but that's okay because some of the best experiments are failures because you learn so much from it. Now I want to ask you about how one removes humidity from a bathroom. And before we get so much into the how, let me ask first why it's so important to remove humidity from a bathroom. I live in an apartment building. I have for like the past eight years of my life. It's something that they ask us to do regularly to turn on the fan, but I never kind of knew why it's so important. So fill us in on that. 
Well, there's a reason why most um, by code bathrooms have windows is because when you take showers, you get an ex excess of humidity inside your bathroom. Now, if you don't deal with that, if you just let it be, what you're going to notice is that you're going to find a, a, a foul smell. You're going to see mold building up into the corners. Uh. So getting rid of that humidity is super important. But the issue is, John, is that the burden is on us because, you, like you say, they you might have a humidity switch that they want you to turn on when you're taking a shower. And then, of course, you have to turn it off after you're done. But some of the issues is you need to leave it on even after you shower to get away that humidity. But the problem that a lot of people have, especially in winter, and this is an issue that I've been dealing with with my Airbnb suite, was that guests weren't using it. They weren't turning it on. So mm. when my cleaner or I would come in, I could sense there's a lot of humidity. So my next solution, John, was to attach the the humidity, um, the actual fan to the light switch. So when the light goes on, the humidity, the, the fan goes on. Right. Which was a great idea, except the guests weren't turning the light off. And because <laughs> it's winter time and I have a heater in there, an electric baseboard heater, it was literally sucking all the heat out and I had to pay for this. So this was driving me nuts. So then my next solution, you know, John, I'm a high tech guy. So yeah. my next solution was I'll install a smart switch. So if they don't turn the, the, the light off, I'll turn it off. However, that requires me to constantly monitor. So finally, John, I was like, I have to solve this problem once and for all. So I did a lot of research on all the bathroom fans out there. And I learned that they've now solved this entire problem. They have what's called humidity sensing bathroom fans. Mm. Now, the way that it works is right where your switch is, if you have an extra spot, you can get a, a little sensor on there and dial at what point of what type of humidity will it turn off. So typically you want it around 60% humidity and then the fan will turn off. So you don't actually have to turn it on or off. It will automatically turn on and off as soon as it senses humidity. And so this is just a great high-tech solution for something that has, you know, bothered parents, bothered yeah. landlords and, and everybody because it is, was very hard for people to get into the behavior of turning on their fans. But now with these humidity sensing bathroom fans, you can do that. And if you have an older bathroom fan that still works, you can buy the actual switch and get an electrician to come in and install that. Problem solved. You're not going to have humidity inside your bathroom. There you go. So it can actually help save you money. And on top of, you know, preserving your 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 health, uh, certainly nobody wants mold to be dealing with. That's a terrible sort of renovation plan that you weren't expecting to be taking uh, on. But that's kind of what could happen if you aren't being too careful. Andy, what is the installation process like? Is it kind of difficult? You mentioned like you can bring in uh, electricians to take care of it all for you. Uh, is this something that maybe if you are savvy with uh, tools at home, if you're into that kind of stuff maybe you could take care of by yourself yes there's really two ways to do this one you can just replace your fan and here's the thing about fans here's a little hack I, that i i learned uh, a long time ago to check to see if your fan is really sucking out the humidity what you can do is you take a piece of toilet paper and you put it to the fan if it's working that toilet paper should stay in that one position and try to go into the vent so that will tell you if you have enough power hmm. so that's one way is to replace the fan altogether with one of these new humidity sensing bathroom fans. All right. However, it does require electrical work. So you're going to have to do some work. Now, if you're not comfortable with, say, 
you know, switching a light switch, then you definitely want to get an um, electrician to do it if you're afraid of electricity. So it's not necessarily a DIY project that everyone can do. You have to have some know-how around electricity. But if you're comfortable, like shutting your breaker off, doing the work, and you know which wires to put, like what's the ground and, and whatnot, um, you can DIY it. But if you're not safe about it, definitely get an electrician. But either way, it is such a great investment. It's something I recommend, especially in the wintertime, yeah. because like you mentioned, it will save you money in the long run. All right. I'm always about uh, saving a little bit of cash and something that could be helpful for my health. That seems like a win-win to me. Uh, moving on here, Andy, one thing you also wanted to tackle was a new scam sort of making its way. And I've been getting messages from WhatsApp, from people that I don't know. I know plenty of my friends have also been messaged and they it, it's kind of clever. They, they come at you with a question. They come at you even sometimes with your name. So what is this WhatsApp scam that seems to be uh, very popular? right now if you're gonna get hacked these days it's probably gonna happen on whatsapp because as they say in the hacker world you got a fish where the fish are and everybody around the world uses whatsapp and so now we're seeing these what what they're called friend in need scams so it looks like it's coming from a friend or a loved one who says that they're suddenly stuck and this is great timing because of what's happening in bc right they're saying i need money and, and your, your immediate instinct is to help that person. And what these scammers are doing is they're going uh, particularly to mothers because they know mothers will do anything for their son and daughters. And somehow, I can't really figure out how they're doing this, but some of them will actually, if they find a lost phone, they will try to use this scam. But somehow they're making it look like they're coming from your loved one's phone. And so if anybody, and this is what I want to warn everybody, if anybody asks you for money through WhatsApp, make sure you get them to call you because mm. that could possibly be a scam. And like you mentioned, there are so many scams that are going on WhatsApp. I have random people that will message me and saying, oh, sorry, I thought you were someone else. And then try to make conversation and build a rapport. So you got to be careful. If you don't know that person, don't trust their photos, don't trust their name, you know, call, make sure you talk to the people so you know that you you do you are texting who you actually think you are. Yeah. No, I think that's a great message, especially since scams uh, more often than not are targeting older people who may not be as savvy with technology, may not be as savvy with some of the scams that are making the rounds. So if they get a message and it's from supposedly or allegedly like a nephew or a niece and all of a sudden they need money, most often than not, like grandparents are willing to do that on a whim. So this is why it's so important to spread that message. We can curb out the scammers and get it to stop forever. Uh, Andy, thank you as always for giving us some good insight into all of this. Appreciate you. And I'm sorry you had to go through what you did with your Airbnb unit, but appreciate your time, sir. Uh, it was a great learning experience, John. So it's not going to happen again. So uh, I'll make sure of that. All right. Uh, he is Andy Barrar, our technology journalist. Find his work online at handyandymedia.com. Thank you, sir. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to The Shift Podcast. Make sure you subscribe, rate, and review the show and share with anyone you like. Get it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and CuriousCast.ca.